Today we had our monthly visit with Mayor Scott Gillingham. With derelict buildings back in the news, we had some follow-up questions for the mayor on the city's role in getting these messes cleaned up and what is being done to remove some of the red tape that sometimes drags this process out way too long. For our small town salute, we headed to Carmen to learn about one of the biggest events of its kind in southern Manitoba, and this is going into its 26th year. We spoke to the owner of a local hair salon whom yesterday one of our listeners told us that this hair shop owner shuts the shop down so that her autistic son can get a haircut in peace. And we asked you about times you had to provide unpaid labor, whether it was intentional or not. I'm Brett McGarry alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb, who's on Connecting Winnipeg this week. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Thursday, May 4th podcast. That's right, May the 4th, Star Wars Day. This is the way on the start. It is Mackling and McGarry. McNabb is on Connecting Winnipeg today and tomorrow, filling in for Hal Anderson. And I just very quickly say, I uh, can't believe how nice it was outside yesterday. You had concern about the wind. You downloaded a new wind app which maybe indicated the wind where you were going yesterday might not be as bad as Environment Canada was suggesting. So what was what was the final result, Brett? The final result was that it was okay. There were a couple of, went on and played golf in LaSalle at Kingswood, first golf round outdoors of the year. And uh, there were a couple of holes where the wind started to pick up, and I thought, oh, boy. Are we actually going to get to this 50K wind? But then it seemed to calm down. So, yeah, it was beautiful. It was wearing short sleeves and shorts after just almost like that. It was amazing. I saw lots of people out in shorts and T-shirts yesterday, so that was nice. But I'm curious if your game wintered well. Like, did you just, like, leave it on the 15th hole at Kingswood? (laughs) Did they tarp it over? And then did you find it? Were you able to find it easily yesterday afternoon as you, you you know, made the home stretch to 18? I sort of rediscovered. Well, I've been playing virtual golf through the winter, but that's that's a little different, though, right? It's, it's different, but it, it it the difference is that I was able to. Normally, it's something where I say I'm going to practice at the uh, in the off season. I'm going to go to a place like the Golf Dome and practice, and uh, I, I, then I don't. So this is the first year where I've played sort of consistently through the the off season, so to speak. So it, it was nice to be able to to just get out there and play as opposed to try to remember how to play. I didn't play well. I never play well, but it was still just great to get out there and get outside with a friend I haven't seen in a while, my buddy Brandon, uh, at a place that I love. It's like my home away from home. So, yeah, and hopefully you got to get outside and enjoy the outdoors a little bit. Is the yard all ready for your summer season? No, 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 I didn't get around. I I had a sick boy at home yesterday, so Mm. I was uh, taking care of him and then, uh, the day got away from me, and so I didn't spend uh, nearly as much time outside, but I did have my first barbecue of the spring last ah. night. So I was going to put some links on that Weber barbecue. I put some hot dogs and Smokies, and uh, yum, yum, yum. Right Give on. me more. So uh, we are ready and rocking. You know, it, it'll take a while to get the yard up to snuff, so to speak, where I like to get it. Got to get some mulch. Got to get some gravel in. Got to re-level some patio stones. But uh, more or less, you know, we're ready to rock and roll. 
In the meantime, we the, looks like the Winnipeg Ice are ready to rock and roll. Oh, on their way to the WHL Championship, in case you missed it last night, would have happened eh, a little bit later as they swept the Saskatoon Blades in four games last night. So they're waiting for the winner of Seattle and Kamloops in the Western Conference uh, to battle in the CHL. Now, if, here's an interesting p- point here, Brett. If Kamloops beats Seattle in that West series, they're down two games to one, but the ice would automatically qualify for the Memorial Cup in Kamloops because the Blazers are already there, already secured a berth as the host team. Oh, boy. Yeah, so that would be interesting. If if Kamloops wins that series, then the ice are automatically through. The Manitoba Moose also won last night. They grabbed a 3-2 overtime victory in Milwaukee. They now lead their best of five series, two games to one, and they can clinch the series Friday night in Wisconsin with the win, and you can hear that game right here on 680 CJOB beginning at 7 o'clock on Friday. All right, go Moose, and then for the second night in a row, Something happened in an NHL playoff game, which prior to Tuesday night had happened only four other times in Stanley Cup playoffs history. Yeah, last night, Leon Dreisaitl scored all four goals in the Oilers' 6-4 loss to Vegas. That just 24 hours after Joe Pavelski had scored all four of Dallas's goals in a 5-4 loss to Seattle. So the record was, or the unusual happening was the losing team having a player score four goals in a game. That's happened six times now, twice in 24 hours. That's nuts. That is kind of weird. The Hurricanes won a game one of their series with New Jersey. The Leafs back at it tonight, looking to even their series with Florida. Cam will have all the sports at 25 after the hour all morning long. All right. So in the meantime, we also need to just give you a heads up. Our monthly visit with the mayor is at 835. Scott Gillingham will join us. And one of the things we want to discuss with him, and we touched on it yesterday, back in the news, derelict buildings. What do we do with the mess? That's right. Ross Eady joined the news yesterday to give his view on what's going on in his Minarski ward and other parts of the city. Are Is the city doing enough? Can they do more? We'll get the mayor's point of view on that coming up at 835. At 735, Thursday means small town salute. We are heading to Carmen. We want to tell you about an event like I just learned about this last year and it was uh, actually a couple of listeners sort of mentioned it and one of my buddies participated in it. It's a golf. It's a charity golf tournament. It's the 26th annual Pritchard Memorial. And if you've never been in a golf tournament, it's typically it, it will max out at one. I think the number is 144 players because there's 18 holes of golf, four players per hole. 72 golfers on a course at any given time, but often in tournaments, they'll send out uh, two groups of four per hole. Right. This tournament had 306 participants last year. Excuse me? 306. They raised almost $100,000. How did they pull that off? Well, that's what we're going to find out at 735, because I'm I, when I my buddy told me how many people were playing, I thought, how did... How? How does that work? But it sounds like they've got this thing down to uh, science. So, so we're excited so, about that. So the how is interesting, but the why is also pretty special as well, isn't it? That's right, because uh, this family has been uh, touched in sad ways by cancer. So we'll learn why, uh, we'll learn what happened and how this tournament came to be and just how did it get so big? It sounds really like a really exciting time. That's coming up in July. So we'll learn about that at 735.
Just want to quickly say to all the Star Wars fans out there on the Star Wars Day, May the 4th, this is the way. Greg, quick follow up on the tri- child labor thing that we were talking about with these kids, these 10 year old kids working in Kentucky at McDonald's until 2 a.m. You were mentioning that a couple of states are easing labor laws. How many states? I found an article which suggests 11 states are going down that road. I'd mentioned Alabama. Alabama is not included in the article that I found outlining what, uh, you know, more, just about a dozen states are doing, 11 uh, states, as I mentioned. But in uh, Alabama, this must have stuck in my memory, the Hyundai plant in Alabama, one of the plants there, they found fake documentation for kids uh, were using fake ID that proved said they were older than they were so that they could work at the Hyundai plant there. And in Iowa, just yesterday, they changed the number of hours that young people can work, the hours of the day, the number of hours they can work in a week in order to ease uh, some of the shortages in, in the labor market. So it's a trend right across uh, several states in America. All right, something to keep an eye on. For sure. And again, you can read more on the McDonald's story at globalnews.ca. And we'll get a little bit more into that in our next segment and tell you how you can win yourself some tickets to see Jagged Little Pill. One year ago, devastation hit a First Nations community north of Winnipeg. Hundreds of Pegwas First Nation residents were brought here as they sought higher ground from rapidly rising waters in the worst flooding event that community had ever seen. Today, many of them are still unable to return home as their homes are either unlivable, in dire need of repair, or straight up condemned. Now the focus in the community is not only on repairing and replacing homes, but also to put in permanent flood mitigation to ensure history does not repeat itself. Global's Marnie Blunt recently visited the community and brings us this special report. It's quiet in Pegwas First Nation. People are going about their day as usual. But beneath the calm, the devastating effects of a flood linger, with the community still in crisis one year later. Carol Spence remembers it well. That was the worst flood ever. Heavy rainfall causing the Fisher River to rise rapidly, creating chaos practically overnight. My son was phoning me and he was, we're flooding, we're flooding. My brother said that four o'clock that morning, it just sounded like a big boom and the water was just released. My brother went around and he jumped in his vehicle and he went honking at everybody's house, driving down the road here to get everybody to wake up. Spence says flooding is a regular occurrence for many homes in Peguis, including hers. She's had over four feet of water in her home on three occasions. Last year was a disaster. That was really bad. That was scary, like knowing that all the roads were getting washed out, and that was scary. Last spring, hundreds of Peguis residents were evacuated to hotels in Winnipeg, and many remain there. That looks pretty bad back here. Spence, however, has refused to ever leave her home during a flood. I never leave. I never leave my house because it's, it's my house. It's the only thing I have, right? Good dog. Hey. Besides my, my child and my grandchild, this is my house. I'm not going to leave. For William Sutherland, the effects of the 2022 flood are present every day. Last year was the highest level that the water has ever came. <laughs> 
I gotta get out and help help the people. It was totally devastating to the community. It's pretty stressful there. They're crying and it's awful. A lot of families gone. While he's relieved flooding this year wasn't as devastating as 2022, he says there's still work to be done. With hundreds of homes still significantly damaged or condemned from last year. This was all covered in water. And there's been houses impacted in 2022 that never were impacted before. It was just extremely hard and, and stressful to, to everyone. As you can see, the flood damage here in Pegwa's First Nation is severe and it repeats itself. Last year, flood waters washed away this road in Culvert. It was repaired and then this year it was washed away again. But many in the community say the real damage is unfortunately to those who live here. Many of our families are still in Winnipeg. Uh, they want to return home. Chief Stan Bird says about 52 families are still living in hotels or rentals in Winnipeg. He says efforts to get them home are moving too slow. Our children's education is suffering. Um, and just their overall health, uh, you know, whether we're talking physical or mental health, uh, people are being pulled into the drugs. It has been a good situation for our people. He also says talks are still ongoing with Indigenous Services Canada to address the housing issues. And the key component is getting permanent flood mitigation infrastructure in the community. It makes no sense for us to build homes if they're going to be flooded again next year. Even one year later, Peguis's flood center remains a revolving door. Supplying sandbags and tiger dikes to homes that were at risk again this spring. Pollyanna Bird started working in the flood center just over a year ago, right as the flooding began. It was hard. Many times I wanted to quit and walk away. Then there's times I couldn't even talk on a phone. I had to just stop and just have a good cry. I never want to see that again. I never want to see that again. It was, it was so devastating for everybody. Bird says when she looks back, the emotions come rushing forward all over again. I just wish everybody could come home. I feel so bad that they, they don't have a home to come home to. That's what I feel really bad about. I wish just everybody could come back. A wish for the community and a hope for change. To ensure a devastating history of flooding stops repeating itself. Marnie Blunt, Global News. I saw that story last night and the visuals are incredibly impactful when you realize uh, what this community has been through. And the comment that, that stands out for me, Brett, is it's all well and good to repair and even replace some of this housing, but does it make sense without permanent flood mitigation? If you want to see the report, you can do so at cjob.com. It's Mackling and McGarry. McNabb is on Connecting Winnipeg today and tomorrow. In case you missed it, just after 6.15, we discussed the headline at globalnews.ca. McDonald's franchisee employed 10-year-olds to work unpaid until 2 a.m. So this was in Kentucky, and you can read more at globalnews.ca or cjob.com. But right now, let's discuss times we provided unpaid labor, whether it was intentional or not. could be something from like when you were a kid, 
Or maybe you got roped into helping someone move and it turned out to be a way bigger job than you expected. Or maybe it was at your job and you put in what you thought was overtime, not realizing you're not getting paid for that. And uh, if nothing jumps to mind, perhaps, how about what's a job you would like to try for no pay? Like just, uh, you know, well, that looks fun. I want to give that a shot. 204-780-6868 for tickets to see Jagged Little Pill coming to Winnipeg in October. Greg, why don't we start with you? Well, I did get roped into, I think I conveyed this story to you, I did get roped into helping my mom move one of her friends one time, showed up. I was hoping to go to a hockey card collectible show in the afternoon, so I thought we'd be there for a couple hours. Showed up with my mom, and we were like the only three people there <laughs> to move with my stepdad's truck. So that was like a 12-hour day. <laughs> I got a couple slices of pizza out of it, though. Wow. The thing so. is, whenever somebody says, oh, we got to move it, I'll take a couple hours, triple it, because it's going to take, oh. if somebody says two hours, it's going to take six. Just like, I, I've, how many times has that happened throughout my life? I'm just like, oh, it'll just be, you know, two hours. All right, we'll be there for six, seven. That's just how it goes. My mom scammed me big time that day. So, yeah. Joanne, I have not forgotten, and, and I have forgiven, but I've not forgotten. <laughs> But my biggest swindle was probably on my side. I got uh, my father-in-law. I was uh, renovating uh, my little house on Morley Street about 15 years ago. And I asked him to come and put some tile down with me in the kitchen one day. That turned into three days a week for two months. He came and helped me do the entire project. Can you, So we still joke whenever I'm doing something. Can you help me put down some flooring? That's it, right? You're not painting or rebuilding this entire home? No, no, no. It's just flooring, Dad. Just floor. <laughs> <laughs> on that on that note, I've, I've mentioned this before, but when I had to sell my house back in 2013 and, you know, fix a couple of things and touch things up, uh, I don't know how to do any of that stuff. And my buddy, Mike uh, Rogers, who uh, we, we hadn't talked in a while, but he, he's, he reached out. And he's like, do you need a hand with anything? And he ended up coming over like every day for two months to help me rebuild parts of the deck and fix this and fix that. So eternally grateful am I for that. Poitras, what about you? Well, as far as I'm concerned, I've been providing free labor for my family uh, since I've been about five years old. <laughs> do the dishes, do laundry, cut the grass, uh, wash the bathroom. I mean, this is all sources of free labor. Um, I was going to present a case uh, to uh, the labor board here in Manitoba um, around <laughs> oh 1996, 1997, but my case was rejected on the count that I am a child and uh, my parents expecting me to do chores around the house um, apparently doesn't uh, classify as a labor uh Dispute. It's called. It's called being part of a family, Cam. Oh, yeah, uh, distribution a, of labor. And I'm, I'm. I'm slowly coming to terms with that at the age of thirty, coming up on thirty-two. I think. I think Cam should have our kids and, uh, you know, make them do labor. I would never ever go. do anything oh, like that on. ever to my kids. <laughs> Never. No, no chores in my house. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. part of the fun of having kids? So you can sort of take revenge on your parents through your kids <laughs> by putting them to work? I would never consider doing something like that, Brett. <laughs> I catch myself all the time doing what my mom would do. Yeah. Alexander, can you grab me this? Brendan, can you get me that? And it's like, I would never I do that to my like, kids. I sound exactly like my mom when I'm doing it, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do they ever say, did your limbs stop working? No. Can you not get up no, and get it yourself? No, they're not They're not pushing back quite yet. So <laughs> they might have got jobs last night, too. So that's, oh. so that's a good thing, I yeah. think. Oh, that's yeah, exciting. Yeah, yeah. Sarah McCarthy, what about you? 
Growing up, I'm older than my younger cousins, so I would show up to the baseball diamond before we would all play softball. They were younger, so they'd play earlier than I would, so we'd be sitting in the crowd, and then comes along the time, okay, we need an umpire, we need an umpire, scanning the crowd, and somehow I got roped into that a few times. For free. For free. Well, I think I got something from the snack bar or something like that, like a Powerade, you know, so... It was worth it in my like ten year ten year old mind. Seventy five cents an hour. <laughs> ten year old mind like that. So yeah, that's mine. Did you do a good job? Yeah. Um, that's up for debate for sure. <laughs> <laughs> they were young though, so I don't think it mattered too for. much. Yeah, exactly. A power rate. Come on, Jeff Forte. What about you? Uh, playing in a band back in the day with my buddies, we uh, ended up doing a free gig for one of our friends for one of his work parties. And uh, so me, I gotta bring the drums. I'm the smallest guy. I got the biggest instrument. Yeah, that's my fault for picking that instrument. But I also had to bring my PA, so I had to haul everything. And after we'd done the gig, well, the rest of the band and uh, my buddies all decide, well, you know, let's have some drinks and let's party. Well, I have the uh, I'm the one who has to haul everything back. Everything, all the speakers, the cables. I'm got my drums. Everything. And she's like, "Is this worth it? Is it worth it?" No, no. <laughs> also, smallest guy, biggest instrument, LOL Forte. I got roped into um, something with uh, that actually was super fun because as, uh, and I'm sure that this is probably, I'm definitely not alone in this working in radio. You end up emceeing lots of things for your friends, like weddings and stuff. I've emceed, I think, three or four weddings. I've spoken at three or four weddings. So almost any time I go to a wedding, I'm doing, I'm, I'm there in, I'm often working, sort of, so to speak, at these things, which is fine. It's a huge honor and privilege to be able to speak at a wedding for someone you care about. But there was one that I went to for a friend and I wasn't involved in any capacity. And I was like, oh, that's kind of nice where I can just relax and enjoy the evening. And then he says to me just before everything was about to get started, hey, um, do you mind uh, like hosting a video? We want to get we want to do a video where you, you go around and ask people to just say casual things about us. Mm. And we want you to, to be the guy on the camera mm. with the microphone. Mm. And, I, and I thought, uh, I really hate being on camera, but sure, that sounds fun. So after the, the after they got married and the reception began, I just started walking around and shoving a microphone in people's faces, saying, "Hey, say something good about uh, the bride and groom," and uh, and they they really liked it. So. Streeters, yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 I did wedding, wedding streeters. streeters. So two zero four seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight unpaid labor. I also remember a time, and I'm not going to identify the. Uh, the workplace, but there was a time where I was sent out to an event and I thought maybe it would be a few hours. Turned out to be a nine-hour day, which is fine. It was a great day. But then I asked my boss after, so what? Do, how do I uh, put in for the hours for that? And he says, what do you mean? Well, it was a nine-hour day. Oh, well, no, that was that was a volunteer thing. Like, I, didn't told, vo- I didn't volunteer for this. You were voluntold, you were, and, my friend. And he said, well, you know where the front door is if you don't like it. I'm like, Okay, I'm just going to walk away now before Brett smash. Brett smash. The, Brett. New, the new guy will do it, Brett.
It is Mackling and McGarry. McNabb is on Connecting Winnipeg today. And tomorrow, we're asking you this morning to tell us about a time you got stuck doing unpaid labor inspired by these 10-year-olds in Kentucky who were working at a McDonald's until 2 a.m. and not getting paid. And I understand Tannis has a rather unique situation. I would say so, Brett. Uh, Tannis says, I once worked for a financial planner that bounced all my paychecks. Does that count? <laughs> yeah, I would say that counts. How many uh, before you got out, Tannis, was the question we asked on the text line. Tannis says, four. Four paychecks. So eight weeks of essentially unpaid labor. I had, I ended up having to walk off the job. The labor board laughed about it when I called to file a claim because of his profession, a financial planner bouncing checks. Did you ever get paid, Tannis? Let us know. Um, that, that reminds me, my very first paycheck at Taco Bell, I didn't get it. What do you mean you didn't get it? It didn't come in. Everybody else got paid. Oh. And, but my check didn't come in. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, to his, I, I still can't believe he did this. My boss, Scott, he wrote me a, pers- a check out of his own account. He just pulled out his checkbook and he said, okay, well, here, here's what it is. Here's the here's your cash, and then when the paycheck comes in, then you can just pay me back. How much was it? Do you remember? It's like three hundred bucks, I think. Wow, that's a fair chunk of change. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, like, because I was fifteen. That's it, a lot of money back yeah. then. Yeah, it was. It was. So it was really nice of him to do that. Uh, but yeah, that's funny. Gosh, I forgot about that until. I haven't thought about that for thirty years. Well, in grade twelve, I I skipped every other. Friday was payday at my first job, so I skipped my last class because I had to go get my paycheck because back in those days, if you didn't go to the bank between, what, 10 and 4? Yeah. You were SOL. There were no ATMs. Yeah. You had to go. You literally had to go cash your check. So I missed math. <laughs> like. Because <laughs> in the semester system, right, your 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 schedule flips every other day. I ended up with a fifty two percent in math because I had to go get my paychecks. <laughs> well, the math the math tells me that's still a passing grade, Mister Mackling. Mm-hmm. Small town salute. This week we are heading to Carmen to talk about an event which I just learned about last year. It sounds like a legendary event, and it has to be, has to be one of the biggest of its kind. We've already heard from one of our listeners who says she was at the very first one. She continues to participate, says it's an amazing event, and this year is the 26th annual Pritchard Memorial Golf Tournament happening July 8th at Carmen Golf and Curling Club last year. They had a whopping 306 participants and raised almost $96,000 for cancer care in Manitoba. Darren Pritchard joins us now. Good morning, Darren. Good morning, guys. So the tournament is in the name and in honor of your brother, Mike. Can you tell us a little bit about about Mike, if you would, please, Darren? Absolutely. Yeah, the tournament, excuse me, like you said, has been going on for 26 years. Uh, Mike was my older brother. Uh, He was a golf course superintendent. Uh, he passed away back in 1998 uh, with cancer. Uh, sarcoma is what he passed away with, uh, bone cancer. And uh, he was a golf course superintendent and went to Fairview College up in northern Alberta. 
that's where he took his schooling. And uh, with his passing, they actually started a golf tournament. And two other gentlemen, young gentlemen, at the same time passed away. So they started this tournament in Manitoba one year, in Saskatchewan, in Alberta as well. And, the, and they did it for 10 years. And then they uh, kind of let the tournament go because it was a lot of driving and a lot of work for them. Um, after doing it in Saskatchewan one year, Alberta one year, the turnout just wasn't the same as it was here in Manitoba. So they continued to do it here. Um, then after that, the local community in Roland and, um, picked up the tournament for a while. And same thing, it's quite a bit of work to do a tournament like that. And they were going to actually stop it. So my younger brother um, and I took the tournament and moved it to Carmen, Manitoba. And since then, we've been running the tournament for about, oh, Jesus, about nine or 10 years there. So the tournament has, ever since his passing, has been going on. This is the 26th annual. And like you mentioned, last year, we hit a record with 306 golfers and uh, 90, almost $96,000 for our two charities. And we'll talk about just how many participants and how do you organize a tournament so big. But uh, your your older brother, Mike, worked at Carmen, uh, the golf course, for a number of years. Uh, he was a head superintendent in Minnedosa for three years, also worked at Grand Pines, all these amazing courses. But your Mike, being your older brother, we also understand your younger brother has had cancer twice in the last eight years. Yeah, yeah. Younger brother Al is uh, actually the head massage therapist for the Winnipeg Jets. And uh, I don't know if you guys remember the Pritch Strong. That's younger brother Al. Uh, of course. He's battled cancer. Yeah, he's battled cancer twice as well. So uh, cancer is obviously very close uh, to this family. And that's why we, we push hard for this tournament to raise all the money we can. Um, our two charities, I should just mention, one is Cancer Care Manito- Manitoba, which we all know. So 50% of the proceeds go there. The other 50% of the proceeds go to South Central Cancer Resource, and that's out in Ma- uh, Morden, Manitoba. And the other half goes to them. And they, uh, they use that money for um, ladies that need wigs that are going through cancer treatment to help pay for fuel for them to drive in um, for cancer treatment and lots of other things. So uh, the other money is kept rural to help out at South Central Cancer Resource. So, you know, how does this tournament get so big? Why do you think it's become so, so popular, Darren? And and the, you mentioned the fact that this tournament, 26 years running, has really found a home in Carmen. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it, it just keeps growing. I, I can't answer that for sure. And I'll be honest, uh, Mike was, uh, his hockey number was number 25. And we planned on shutting it down last year because organizing something like this, we do have a community, it, it takes a lot of work. We thought about shutting it down after 25, but when you're doing, uh, you know, it grew to the largest tournament we've ever had, 306 golfers, 96,000. How do you stop something like that? So uh, we're going to keep it going. We're going to, we signed on for another five years. We want to get it to at least 30 years. Um, you know, everyone we talked to said, no, you can't stop something like this. We have people flying in uh, from Alberta and Ontario and stuff, and they say this is uh, one of their favorite times of the year to get back in. There's so many people there and people they don't see only annually at this tournament. Uh, you know, the Carmen Campgrounds right across the road and people come out and camp and make a weekend of it and, and just turn it into a, an amazing weekend of seeing friends and hanging out. And, and it's just for the cause. You know, and, and we just keep reaching out to more and more sponsors to be whole sponsors and to donate prizes as well. And it just keeps growing. 
year after year because everyone I'm sure listening to the radio today has been affected by cancer one way or another or know someone who has been. And again, 100% of our proceeds go to help those uh, with cancer. So a typical golf tournament will max out at 144 golfers because there are 18 holes of golf. Uh, four, it's usually four golfers per hole, but they'll often send out two groups of four uh, and just sort of stagger the, the golfers that way. But with three over 300 people, you can't send everybody out all at once. So is it staggered tee times through the day? Yeah, we do a shot. Uh, we can't do a shotgun start. Sorry, we used to do that. We've outgrown a shotgun start. We start our tee times at 7.30 in the morning. And what we do is every 13 minutes, we send off not four people, but we actually golf in four or five sums, but we do two at a time. So there's either eight or 10 people on the tee at a time. Uh, we've done this for many, many years, and the, the teams really enjoy it because you're golfing beside another team at all times. And uh, the last person tees off at 239 last year, every 13 minutes, and we're able to put through 306 golfers on 18 holes on the same golf course in one day. All right, so we got we to gotta get going here, Darren. But before we go, uh, the website is PritchardMemorial.com, and one of the big components of the fundraising for this tournament is through an online raffle. So what's up for grabs? Yeah, I'll just, it's PritchardMemorial.ca is our website. Sorry, PritchardMemorial.ca. But, yeah, one of our big ways we raise money is through our raffle. And um, our raffle tickets are $20 each. You purchase a raffle ticket. The grand prize, and if you go on our website, you can see last year's winners – Grand prize is a free flight anywhere in North America to go see a Winnipeg Jets game. Two free tickets, two nights accommodations, $500 U.S. spending money, two Jets jerseys. You stay in the same hotel where the Jets stay, um, and you get to go to morning skate and such like that. That's grand prize. Second prize is a fishing lodge package. Third prize is a $1,000 gift certificate at Thermaea. And for $20 ticket, you actually get a two-for-one green fee at Carmen. So if you like golf, you enjoy golf, you want to go to Carmen, that value is $45. So spend 20 bucks on a ticket, you get a $45 green fee free. And uh, we are selling these through the committee. We're selling them at the Carmen Golf Course. Uh, the Carmen Grad Committee is selling them. There's only 2,500 tickets, and we're actually looking for other sports teams to help sell these tickets. If we're looking for baseball, soccer teams, cheer, anything like that, if they buy the, or use these tickets, get these tickets and sell them for us, every $20 ticket, they keep $5. So there's only 2,500 tickets. We've sold almost 12 or 1,400 now. Um, so we're just trying to sell all these tickets we can to raise money again for the cancer. And um, yeah, if anyone wants to, um, sell tickets, their football team, soccer team, anything like that, please reach out at PritchardMemorial at gmail.com. Darren Pritchard joining us live on 680 CJOB. Darren, thank you very much for this. The website, once again, PritchardMemorial.ca, and it is at Carmen, which is a great golf course. This sounds like an awesome day. Uh, so if you need any more information, feel free to shoot us a text, 204-780-6868, or go to the website, PritchardMemorial.ca. <laughs> It is Mackling McGarry McNabb is on Connecting Winnipeg today and tomorrow, filling in for Hal Anderson, as she did yesterday. Right now, we just want to get right into this because the issue with derelict and unoccupied buildings is back in the spotlight this week. City Council Ross Eady, Deputy Speaker, who represents the Minarski Ward, is frustrated over the way derelict buildings are being handled in the city. Edie joined the news with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham yesterday afternoon. Well, in terms of progress, I mean... Okay, so we've changed some bylaws to make them a bit different. 
um, you know, where we put the uh, firefighting bill on it. But ultimately, the city ends up with these properties. And then and then we do have a thing going forward where uh, even before, let's say, it burns down, if, it, if it's unrepairable, it needs to be torn down. Um, the owners of the property can ask to just tear it down without a plan to build Mayor Scott Gillingham joins us now on the start. Uh, Mayor Gillingham, good morning. Are the new provisions in the bylaw with regard to sending property owners the, the bill for, for fighting a fire, are they enough in your mind? Well, Councillor Eady's right that uh, we are taking action. And I, I can tell you, first of all, I, I share the same frustration that a lot of Winnipeg residents uh, share when, when we see these properties that are either derelict, derelict for a long time, or when a fire happens and the building, just the rubble sits there. So we are, we are actually, uh, we have a, a, a reports that are coming back to committees in the next uh, several weeks that will look at maybe what more can be done to expedite demolitions and to make sure that cleanup of buildings that burned uh, happens sooner rather than later. And I, I really need to commend Councillor Cindy Gilroy for her leadership on this, all of us, uh, all councillors and mayor, you know, as mayor, I want to see changes. But uh, kudos to Councillor Cindy Gilroy. She's really been pursuing the improvements and, uh, and leading this charge. So Tuesday, we shared the story of a lot on Matheson Avenue in West Kildonan, where fire had destroyed a vacant home nine months ago. The rubble, a garage and a burnt out car are among the items which remain and the lot is now attracting dumping. So, Mayor Gillingham, well, first of all, uh, I don't know, are, are you familiar with this specific situation? I'm, I'm, I've heard of it. I'm not as familiar, you know, with it as a couple of other properties, but, but, I've, but I've, heard of, uh, I've, I've heard of this property. So, from your point of view, is the city handling these situations in a way which best serves those who live next to, across from, or near sites like this? Well, in, in some cases, perhaps not, and that's why we're making the changes that we, that we want to make. And uh, we have established a problem property committee as well that, that looks at what more the city can be done. And that, that committee includes uh, Winnipeg Fire Paramedic, Community Services, Bylaw Enforcement, Police, Property Development, uh, Public Health Department, just to, to make recommendations to council what more can be done and what changes can be made. And we have made some changes. You know, Councillor Edie's clip that you just played yesterday, or from, from yesterday, uh, talks about the fact that uh, it used to be the case that you always needed a residential building plan before you could get a demolition permit. Well, now we've given authority to the uh, the department where there can be cases where the demolition permit can be issued prior to a building uh, plan being being brought forward so that we can make the, the site safer. There has been some suggestion by some, Mayor Gillingham, that, you know, if you take a drive up Main Street, uh, for an example, those three burnt out businesses, that fire back in, I want to say in February, but it might've been later than that. You know, the rubble, you know, sits there, it's fenced off. It's demoralizing. It's an eyesore. And I I can't imagine that it's a, it's good for the psychology of the people who live and work and, and are in that area. There's also, you know, I, the question I have is how do we allow this just to, to sit there like that? But the corresponding question is there are some who feel as though this would be allowed to happen only in certain parts of the city, that if there were burnt out buildings in, in more affluent parts of Winnipeg, uh, the buildings would not be allowed to sit like that. What's your take on that? Well, first of all, it, it is that is a blight. It is an eyesore. It's frustrating to me 
when I drive by there, it, it frustrates me. You know, I ask, why can't this be cleaned up? And I, I looked into it. That situation at 843 Main Street specifically, the city issued an order for that site to be cleaned up following the fire in February. But the province, Workplace Health and Safety, they have stepped in and issued a stop work order for asbestos testing and potential uh, remediation. So really the, the provincial Workplace Health and Safety order uh, trumps, uh, supersedes the city's order to clean up. So that, that has to be done. And that's a, that's a matter between the property owner and Workplace Health and Safety at, at this point. But, uh, but in, you know, I know there's a situation at 694 Sherbrooke as well. There's other sites. And I can tell you that there's not a councillor that I've spoken to that isn't equally frustrated with, uh, with these situations. That's why we're working hard to take action to make changes so that, uh, you know, our city can be, can be cleaned up and, and, you know, the derelict buildings reduced. And when something burns or when something's torn down, the rubble is cleaned up as soon as possible. Our guest this morning is Mayor Scott Gillingham. Our monthly visits, and you reference this provincial order uh, for workplace health and safety. Any idea how long that situation could drag on? I don't. I don't have any idea as far as the status of the, uh, you know, the the, the the look at whether there's asbestos uh, testing uh, or there's testing for asbestos. I, I don't have the status of that. 2017, Mayor Gillingham, uh, City of Winnipeg tried unsuccessfully to implement what was called then an impact fee on new development. Ultimately, as you know, $30 million was refunded to developers who paid the fee ahead of the, an eventual successful lawsuit. In the aftermath of that lawsuit, the Manitoba home builders said, quote, the development industry is ready to work with the city to create a plan for growth that works for everybody. Are we getting closer to a plan like that with developers? We, we, we are having, uh, I would say, good discussion with, with the development community. And I know one of the first things that we have been working on is the development agreement parameters. And that really is a matter of, um, you know, who's responsible to pay for what, uh, you know, uh, capital installations, whether it's the city or the development the developer. So there's development agreement parameters that's a, that, that need to be updated. That's the first step, and, and that's very, very close to being to being done. And that has been a process between the city of Winnipeg and the development community with really a third party facilitating those discussions. We also know there's a regional plan coming, the first one. I, every time I hear that, Mary Gillingham, I shake my head to imagine that the capital region hasn't had a cohesive plan for bedroom communities and the city of Winnipeg to work uh, towards a common goal. Is there anything in there which uh, may allow the city to come up with, let's say, thresholds for population uh, with regard to schools, with regard to fire halls, with regard to community centers, because there are brand new neighborhoods in our city that are scrambling, begging for services like that. And it baffles my mind personally, and I know I'm not alone, that there there isn't some sort of automatic sort of formula that says once this, you know, developments get sold to a certain point, then this kicks in and then we have to build that and then we have to build this. Well, yeah, that's all kind of the discussion that uh, that needs to happen. I, I can tell you that, you know, what I have said is that we need to be learning from our previous developments. You know, for example, Waverly West and, and Councillor Luke's ward, you know, there's close to 50,000 people that have been added to that area over the last, you know, several years. We should be learning lessons from what went well in the development and, and, and what didn't go well. 
you know, to, after the fact that we're looking at putting in a fire hall, you know, and after the fact, in many ways, we're looking at putting in a significant uh, community uh, uh, community center. So as, as we look at new developments, we really need to be learning the lessons of what's gone on in the past. I will say, though, when it comes to the Winnipeg Metropolitan Region, I, I, I co-chaired that uh, committee uh, for several years. And, and we, as we've developed what's called Plan 2050, which is a regional land use development plan. And, um, you know, now under new provincial legislation, it's changed somewhat. And Mr. Mike Moore is now the chair, uh, and I welcome that. He's now the chair of the Winnipeg Metropolitan Region. He had, we had our first meeting with him as chair just recently. But we will be looking to work together, plan together, develop together as a region. Mayor Scott Gillingham joining us live on 680 CJOB. Mr. Mayor, thank you for the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. I will just say congratulations to the Winnipeg Ice, who last night won the Western Hockey League Eastern Conference Championship. So they're going on to the final. So good luck to the ice. All right. Thank you for that reminder. And when, if you, in case you missed it earlier this morning, there's a weird situation there with that where they could potentially just or like automatically get into the Memorial Cup. If, if it was a Kamloops, if they win their series That's and then, right. then go on to face the Winnipeg Ice in that final. So two conference championships, uh, the Eastern conference championship, the ice claimed that last night in Saskatoon on the West side, you've got Seattle and Kamloops battling things out and the winner will play Winnipeg. Well, if the winner of that series does ultimately end up being Kamloops, Kamloops is already playing in the Memorial cup because they're hosting the tournament so that would mean that the Winnipeg Ice would automatically qualify. And so that seven game best of seven would be irrelevant. But Seattle's leading that uh, series right now, two to one. It is Mackling and McGarry. McNabb is on Connecting Winnipeg. She's going to check in with us at 9.50. After Global News at 9.30, we want to tell you about the season finale show at the Royal Winnipeg Ballet. Peter Pan will be joined in studio by Julian Pelicano, the principal conductor. And in our next segment, we've got tickets to give away for Jagged Little Pill. The Broadway award-winning musical inspired by the music of Alanis Morissette. And we're asking you to tell us about times you got roped in for free labor Last chance, tell us a story at 204-780-6868. Right now we want to follow up on something rather special that came up yesterday from one of our listeners when we were talking about good customer service through the morning. We asked for your experiences with good customer service, and listener Rose P. shared this story about a hair salon in Osborne Village. Best consistent customer service by far, says Rose. My son Jonah has autism. He has always hated in capital letters haircuts he has high sensory needs he dislikes the buzzing of the clippers anyone touching his head and the noise and commotion of a hair salon he's nonverbal, so he doesn't understand what's happening through the years it's always been a struggle going to a hairdresser which has led to pinching running away bothering other clients etc well we met an angel a little while ago named Buck, who owns The Hive. He now closes his shop just for Jonah so that Jonah can come get his hair cut in peace. We wait until Jonah gets more comfortable and and Buck will cut his hair anywhere in the shop, on the floor, in the hair washing area, 
anywhere where Jonah settles. Still not easy, but Buck's patience has slowly helped Jonah. Talk about customer service. This is pure kindness that means more to us than Buck could ever know, Brett. Buck Geringer joins us now from the Hive Hair Company. Buck, good morning to you. Good morning to you guys. How you doing? Doing very well, sir. Thanks so much for joining us. So I guess first question is, uh, after hearing what you just heard, what's your reaction? Uh, well, that's very sweet of uh, Rose to say those nice things about me. Um, I'm, you know, I'm flattered. Uh, I didn't realize it was that big of a deal, but I'm, I'm sure uh, happy she appreciates it so much. How did this relationship come about? Like how long has uh, uh, Ro- the Winded Rose first come, uh, come by? I guess it's been maybe a couple years now. Um, I know her through a uh, really good friend of mine um, named Tim, and uh, he was the one who uh, referred her over to me. Um, just kind of said I might be the guy willing to do a job like that. You're feeling it's feeling like you're being a little bit humble about this. Buck. Well, I, I feel a little sheepish. I, I got to admit, yeah, it's uh, I, you know I didn't. Uh, obviously do it for any kind of uh, recognition and uh, yeah, I feel a little, sh- little shy about it. Little, well, don't, little well, don't because <laughs> yeah. this is, uh, we were talking about the idea of going beyond the expectation in a customer service fashion yesterday. And this really does do this. So I have to ask you, did you have, or have you had any previous experience working with people with unique needs like Jonas? Uh, I suppose. I mean, uh, it's certainly not my area of expertise, but, you know, anybody who comes to the door and uh, needs a haircut, we certainly try to uh, accommodate. So, you know, I've, I've, have a, I've been in the business a long time. I have a wide range of uh, clientele. So, yeah, I've, I've had a little bit of everything. But maybe, uh, you know, uh, Rose and Jonah would be uh, kind of a special case, I suppose. Now, working in a salon, you, you meet all kinds of people from various walks of life, I'd imagine, and, and likely in various emotional states, and people having good days, bad days. How much have you learned about the human condition in your role? Because I, I like often think that, you know, outside of people working in sort of like a professional environment, the, 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 some of the best counselors in the world are bartenders and hairstylists. Yeah, there's some, there's some truth to that. I mean, if, if people trust you with their hair and they get to know you and they've been uh, ongoing regular customer, they'll 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 confess things that uh, you know they don't even tell their uh, the people they live with or their partner or whatever. So you you get some pretty uh, emotional conversations. You get some confessions. You uh, you know we don't have the credentials to you know we're not psychologists, but you know if we can help people out in any way we can or just it's just, you know, someone to vent to and uh, hopefully without judgment. I mean, that's kind of a role we can uh, hopefully provide. Um, but, yeah, I've heard a lot of crazy stories, a lot of, uh, you know, emotional things. You know, people people come get their hair cut uh, because they're going to a funeral, right? So, you know, it, it can be an emotional thing for people. Um, the big moments of their lives, uh, people will get haircuts you know, for weddings, they'll get get haircut because they're going to a funeral, they'll graduation, whatever. So you see some big moments in people's lives and some big emotions that go along with that. Being a hairstylist is obviously a licensed profession. It's also uh, something that is uh, very important to a lot of people. And Brett just mentioned some of the relationships that people form over the years. But customer service overall, Buck, 
I've always imagined it as something that's a little bit of a calling that, that you have to have a certain personality feeling dedication to it, to provide it. Uh, how did you get into th- this world? Um, well, yeah, I guess you could say I'm a people person. Like you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get into this uh, profession if, you know, you were, uh, if you weren't interested in people and their stories and, and, uh, I wouldn't describe myself as extroverted, but, um, you know, I'm certainly, uh, do enjoy hearing people's stories and talking to people. So that's, that's key. Uh, my kind of backstory is, uh, being a hairstylist was actually plan B. Uh, I was, uh, kind of pushing to become a, I guess, a professional uh, musician at one point. So I was, you know, playing guitar, writing songs, playing in bands. And the hairstyling was just something I kind of did on the side or, or, you know, kind of waiting for the big record deal to come in and uh, was doing uh, hair kind of uh, to compensate that. And, uh, you know, 20 years later, I'm still doing hair, but, you know, I didn't become a rock star. So, you know, it's, it's plan, plan B worked out okay for me. Do you still perform in a band? Uh, not these days. I play casually. I, uh, I got a young family. Um, you know, my wife and I play a lot of campfire guitar and, you know, we still sing and write songs and, you know, play music, but, uh, I don't intend to, I think I'm retired. I don't think I'm uh, going to be uh, playing at a bar any day soon. Well, you can get still go see Buck and get a haircut at the Hive Hair Company. It's at 175 Osborne. Buck, thank you so much for joining us to chat about this. We really appreciate your time. Uh, yeah, no problem, guys. That uh, no, that was quite touching. Thank you. 9.13 with Mackling and McGarry. We thank Rose P. once again for sharing this story just so we could learn a little bit more about how I, I missed. I somehow missed the detail yesterday, Greg, uh, where that he'll cut the, the hair wherever Jonah decides to settle, even if it's sitting on the floor. Well, that's pretty incredible. It is incredible. And you have to be a special person to have the patience, the willingness, the want. Never mind doing it once to do it on a regular basis and then to shut the place down. That's just a dedication that you don't see everywhere. And I think it was uh, very uh, worthy of our conversation this morning. And you could tell Buck was, uh, is, is very humble about it. And, and that probably makes it next level special as well, Brett. Mackling and McGarry McNabb is on Connecting Winnipeg. And on the subject of unpaid labor, we're asking you about times that you got stuck, you know, working for free based on these kids in Kentucky, where it looks like over 300 kids, including two 10-year-olds, have been working at McDonald's and not getting paid. And the 10-year-olds were working till 2 a.m. And uh, McNabb grew up on a farm, so she would probably salute this listener who says, our kids give free labor on the family farm. Once 14, they get paid for their actual shifts. But yeah, I'm guessing that any kid who grows up on a farm learns a work ethic darn quick. No question about that. Uh, Mike says, good morning, guys. I have been roped into working on many occasions in many capacities. For my really close friend of over 35 years, he has asked me to help drywall his basement, lay pre-finished hardwood, build a deck, work on his car, and a host of other jobs. Not a penny paid. 
And truth be told, I wouldn't have it any other way, as I know he's a friend that will instantly be there for me when I need a hand, no matter the job, no matter the length. Having someone as reliable as him cannot have a price attached. Perhaps suffice to say he is priceless, and I am extremely fortunate beyond words to have met him through work all those years ago. Cheers from Mike. Another thoughtful text from Mike. Thank you very much for that, Mike. Always a tough choice to pick a winner, so one of our runners-up. I'll read the runner-up, and Greg, you can take the winner. Bob Clark says, my initials are RC, Robert Clark. But as you may as well have used the initials to call me, R Emote, Remote, C Control, Remote Control, the human version growing up. If I was watching television with my dad in the 70s or 80s, it was my job to get up off my seat and go to the TV every time my dad had the whim to change the channel from one to the other, most often during sports weekends. I'm glad we only had three channels built up my endurance, I guess. (laughs) Very good, Bob. Uh, Bob, you're the runner-up. Kathy's our winner today. My unpaid labor story is when I was about 10. My parents sent me to a babysitter every day after school. The babysitter's daughter had a flyer route, and I got roped into helping with delivering the flyers. I didn't want to do it, and it was a huge, super long route, so it took us hours to do. I was told I had to help because the daughter needed the money so they could go to Disneyland, and when they went, they'd bring me back a bunch of toys and souvenirs. Well, they never ended up going to Disney, and I still had to help with that flyer route for a year and a half. I think my babysitter just wanted us out of the house and out of her hair. <laughs> Kathy, congratulations. You win yourself a pair of tickets for Jagged Little Pill, the musical, the Broadway award-winning musical coming to Winnipeg at the Centennial Concert Hall this October based on the music of Alanis Morissette. This week, it's your chance to escape to Neverland. The Royal Winnipeg Ballet's final show of the season is underway, Greg. It's Peter Pan. Yeah, and it's much anticipated. Lots of people excited about this. Julian Pelicano is the principal conductor of Canada's Royal Winnipeg Ballet and associate conductor of the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. Julian joins us in the studio for the first time since the before times. It was almost not meant to be, Julian. You went... You went to Polo Park. That's how long it's been. We've been here three years. You went to our own sp- old spot. That's right. I, uh, it's been a while, and I uh, just creature of habit. All right. Well, don't go there next time. Right. Just come and see us here. Now, speaking of trips, uh, I follow Alexander Micklethwaite on all the social media. I also am Facebook friends with him. You were down in Oklahoma this weekend. I was there last weekend, yeah. I was conducting uh, the Oklahoma City Philharmonic in uh, two performances of Black Panther live. Cool. Symphony, and uh, it was awesome. We also had uh, Masamba Diop, who's the um, – he plays an instrument called the talking drum, which is a very important West African instrument. And he's like the guy. He uh, played – he recorded the talking drum solos on the original soundtrack of Black Panther – and he played them live with the orchestra with us in Oklahoma City. And that's Alexander's uh, current uh, orchestra. And I got to catch up with him. It was a lot of fun. That is neat. Yeah. That's cool. So first show last night for Peter Pan. Yes. How was it? Fantastic. Absolutely wonderful. The crowd was great. Wonder- great energy from the audience. Dancers were just so excited to be up there on stage doing this. It's a lot of fun. I'm not a dancer, obviously. Uh, everyone, if you saw me, uh, you'd be able to tell that immediately, but it, um, it just looks like so much fun to dance and they, um, and they tell me it's fun. So 
I just have to believe them. And the orchestra had a good time too. What Great is music. it? What is it about these timeless, these classics? Uh, you know, these movies that have been converted to ballet or stage productions that are converted and presented with with orchestra, like all the different interworkings. What is it about a show like Peter Pan that not only you said the symphony was excited, excites the audience and engages? What 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 is it about it? Well, um, you know, the sto- it's a classic story, first of all. Like, uh, there's something there, for sure, uh, that uh, people know the story, but it also has captured uh, people's hearts for over 100 years. Um, when you translate a story like that into dance, um, obviously that's not easy if, for, for a choreographer to tell a story like Peter Pan without any words, right? Um, sometimes we don't think about that, but it's, it's a difficult thing to do. Is there a benefit there then in terms of audience engagement? The fact that they know the basis for the story, at least most of them will. And so they're sort of flipping the pages of the book that they grew up reading as they're following along with the ballet. Sure. Well, that's been um, sort of one of the um, uh, devices that both ballet and opera have been using for the past 350 years is uh, presenting stories that people potentially already know. Uh, but I don't think that that necessarily deters, uh, even if you don't know the story, um, one of the things that in a ballet program that's very important is the synopsis. So reading, so if you kind of, when I go to the ballet, if I'm in New York and I go to American Ballet Theater, New York City Ballet, even if it's a story that I think I know, I still like kind of digest the synopsis beforehand. That way when you're seeing it, you kind of replay it in your mind. Um, but you know, one of the things that ballet has as a um, as a benefit or you know uh, an advantage is that because there are no words, it can be understood by anybody. Whereas opera, there's a language involved, right? So if you're just listening to opera, and even if there are supertitles, um, you know, um, let's say you're you're listening to an opera in German, the supertitles are in English, and you don't speak either of those languages, you're gonna have a hard time. But in ballet, anybody can understand it. It's just uh, movement. And um, and the movements themselves, it's surprising. I'm I'm continuously surprised on how much information you can convey with just movement and lighting. Well, Julian Pelicano is our guest, principal conductor of Canada's Royal Winnipeg Ballet. We're talking about Peter Pan, the season finale show, which is underway at the Centennial Concert Hall. And on that subject of of anybody being able to understand. Uh, I, I don't. I've never looked into any sort of science on this, but I've been told anecdotally that it can actually be like good to bring your kids to the ballet, and the younger the better, because they're it helps them sort of learn how to analyze things and interpret things and understand symbols, uh, because they're watching this story that's presented with just movement and no dialogue. Oh, that makes perfect sense, and and music I think is also uh, can can be beneficial. Like people say the same thing about music, like music lessons as a kid or whatever. If you play instruments, or even if you just listen to music, especially you know classic music in a sense, it's very um, metaphorical in in a way. You have to have a certain amount of uh, not only creativity but also. Um, you know, yeah, comp, like kind of analysis, you know, you're kind of going through things in your brain and you're translating them. And it's just good for you. Like your mind just works. You know, as you watch a ballet or you listen to this music, um, the the gears in your mind translating it, um, it's a, it, it, are going, you know. Um, 
and so yeah, there, I, I certainly would expect that um, bringing kids to a ballet and having them sort of use their imagination to interpret what's going on on stage can only you know not only entertain them but also kind of be beneficial in some in many other ways. So we spoke with one of your symphony colleagues uh, on Tuesday about the upcoming WSO after party. We were also curious about the season and how it's gone so far with the WSO and what it's been like to be able to play in front of audience again. So we'll ask you the same questions that pertains to the RWB. How's it, how's it been to perform in front of full houses again? I mean, it's, it's been amazing. Um, you, um, it's hard to, it's, it's actually kind of hard to forget those times when our performances just completely stopped. Um, it was very unusual. I mean, for someone who's, I've been, performing in front of an audience since I was eight. And so from eight until 40, <laughs> it was just continuous performing. Uh, and then suddenly nothing. It was very, very unusual, very strange. Uh, and, and my wife is also a musician and she's in the same boat. And the two of us were just kind of like, well, what do we do now? Uh, but now that, uh, you know, we're back in front of an audience, it just feels so natural. I mean, when I, it, to be honest, I feel more comfortable when I step out on a stage in front of 2,000 people <laughs> than anywhere else. It's just kind of like I feel completely at home. So to be able to do that again, uh, just, you know, it it adds a, you know, it completes your life in a certain way if you're a performer. Is there a renewed appreciation for what it is you get to do? Oh, 100%. 100%. I, I, I remember... You know, when I the, one of the first concerts I did um, when I first went out back into an audience, I just back in front of an audience. You know, I, I, I don't tear up, but I was definitely very emotional about just seeing all the people and and hearing the sounds and of 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 the crowd, and it's special. It's 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 so extraordinarily special to to us as stage performers. Um, really hard to put into words what what that means to us. When you're performing a WSO show, you're on the stage. A little different, though, when it's an RWB show. So for those who don't know how it works, who maybe have never been to the ballet, how does that work? There's, you know, We're watching ballet. There's live music happening. Where are you? Yeah, you know, I, I actually get this question a lot from, from audience members and patrons because, you know, ballet uh, in some parts of the world uh, is, prime, is done to um, recordings, you know, but the the art form itself, and it's in the way that I believe that really um, lets it uh, project the artistry of the dancers the the best is with live music, and that's the way that it's it's been done. That that is how the art form is supposed to be done. Um, and uh, we're so we're very very lucky in Winnipeg. There aren't that many cities in Canada where ballet is performed live uh, to an orchestra consistently. It's Winnipeg, Toronto, and Montreal. That is it. Uh, where we are having uh, live ballet uh, with a full professional orchestra all season long. And so we are under the stage. Uh, for Peter Pan, we have 60 musicians in the, in the pit. That's what, that's what it's called. And it literally is a pit. It's 108 inches deep. It is under the stage. Um, and um, I'm on a podium raised so that I can see the stage, and I'm the only one who can really see the action on stage from the pit. And my job there is as a liaison between the music and the dancers. And uh, I, I feel a great responsibility because uh, the dancers' uh, lives are in my hands for two hours of music. 
So it's not just the orchestra looking to you, the dancers look to you as well? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, and that's why it's so important to have that live music is that there's an actual uh, conversation in body language and eye contact that goes on between myself and the dancers. I'm watching them. They're watching me. I'm I, obviously, I know the choreography because I've worked with them and I've studied it, but these are living, breathing artists. It's not going to be exactly the same every night. They're not robots. And so I watch them. I predict what they're doing. I see what's going on on stage, and I get inspired by them. That's the most important part. I watch them. I take what I'm seeing, and then I put that into the music we're making, and we um, and we try and just have a real synergy between the 60 musicians in the pit who can't see the dancers and the dancers who are on stage, and I sort of try to bring that all together. Man, that's giving me anxiety just thinking about all that responsibility. (laughs) So good for you for being able to juggle that. But I'm curious if something like this ever happens. Uh, We have a saying around here called, we got to rag the puck. Sometimes things go wrong. We're trying to get somebody on the phone that we were expecting to speak to. They're not available. Their phone's not ringing. We got the wrong, whatever. So we just got to, like, we're now live. The segment started, but something's gone wrong, so we have to rag the puck to fill time. So when you're, has it ever, a situation ever happened where you've begun playing the music you're supposed to play, but whatever is supposed to be happening on the stage isn't happening? Do you ever have to rag the puck, so to speak? Uh, You know what? I'm sure that that does happen all the time. I've been pretty lucky, and but although my ballet career has been somewhat short at this point, so I've been the principal conductor with the uh, Royal Winnipeg Ballet since 2019, and two of those years were where we weren't doing anything. I was guest conducting with them since 2017, and in that time, I I've, I haven't had any moment where it's just been uh, so such a significant issue on stage. But that being said. Um, in the in my career, which I hope is is going to be a long one with dancers, because I really love working with them, I can guarantee that something will happen. <laughs> something will happen, for sure. Um, yeah, it's just uh, and and you have to go with it. I mean, little things happen for sure, and you just have to go with it. You have to sure. improvise, and and that level of spontaneity is what makes it exciting, right? Well, we're so blessed in this community not only to have the WSO but the RWB. The fact that they perform together, even at Rainbow Stage, to have the live orchestra obviously must be extraordinary as well. So thank you for uh, what you do, Julian. It's uh, great to have you back in the studio. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's great to be here. RWB.org for more information and tickets for Peter Pan. There's a show tonight, tomorrow night, Saturday night, and then Sunday afternoon at the Centennial Concert Hall. And that concludes the Royal Winnipeg Ballet season.